On today's episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand, I got the absolute pleasure of talking to Mark Werner from Ghostbed. Mark is a serial entrepreneur. He has done 100 business transactions in his life. Came from a family business where they own 85% of the market share. They created the aluminum ladder. I can't even really articulate how incredible this episode was and just the honor it was to get to talk to somebody like Mark. Yeah, I think you guys are going to get a a ton out of this one. This is one I'm going to share with every single friend, whether they're in business or not, because he was just an absolute wealth of knowledge. And it's really cool to see somebody, you know, a little bit older, he's 64 and seeing where he's at and really doing the right things. We had some offline conversations that were just incredible to hear how he's really making the world a better place. Yeah, just an amazing episode. At Mindful Marketing, we know that you want your brand to be successful. In order to do that, though, you need to predictably acquire new customers. The problem is Facebook and Google are only getting more expensive, which makes you feel unsure of whether your brand will survive. We believe that building a community of loyal and repeat customers is the answer. We understand how hard it is to predictably grow a brand, which is why we have created a system using our own mid-seven-figure e-commerce brand as a test case. And here's how we do it. Number one, we execute a profitable ads strategy. Number two, we build a brand-owned loyal base of repeat customers. And number three, we grow exponentially predictably and consistently so download our free sales launch checklist at mindfulmarketing.co slash slc so you can stop having sales the bomb and instead grow your revenue predictably and exponentially before we begin i just want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor gorgeous look If you're looking to scale and improve your customer service without scaling your headcount, I highly recommend Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores. It combines all of your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone into one platform. This saves your support team tons of hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. With Gorgeous, you can easily use machine learning to automate responses to your most frequently asked questions. And if you're on Shopify, you can edit, return, refund, or create an order right through Gorgeous. This frees up time so your support team can focus on complex questions. Brands like Olipop, Deathwish Coffee and Steve Madden have reduced their response times and increased efficiencies. And I just want to say that we use them at every single one of our brands and it saves us tens, if not hundreds of hours a month. So book a demo at gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S today. And mention the Secrets to Scaling podcast for two free months. Now, on to today's episode. Hey guys, Jordan West back here with another episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand. I am absolutely honored to have Mark Werner from Ghostbed, etc. All sorts of brands, all sorts of companies on the podcast today. Mark, welcome to Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand. Thank you for having me as your guest today. I look forward to our chat. Absolutely. Uh, Mark, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a little bit intimidated because um, you are... uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, me times about 10 in, um, I'm, I'm not even going to say how many years ahead, because I'm not exactly sure uh, how many years ahead of me you are right now, but I'm 35. Yeah. So <laughs> well, just shy of double. I'm 64. <laughs> I'm okay. Young- 
work. And I'm proud to say I've worked about 80 hours a week for the past 40 plus years. That's in a full-time capacity. And I really started working when I was probably around six. And I, and I love it. Okay, wow. Mark, for people who don't uh, know anything about you, can you give us the high level about who you are uh, and what you do? And I'd love to hear a little bit of your family history as well. That'd be my pleasure. So I was fortunate to be, uh, as my dad likes to put it, a member of the Lucky Sperm Club and born into the Werner family, where my uh, grandfather had started the Werner Company over 100 years ago. And he was a a poor guy and a family of 12. And um, he was a military guy, lieutenant colonel, served in World War One and Two. And he started the Werner Company. And then um, they did a number of things without boring you with all the details. It was quite interesting. And then my dad and his generation... Um, my dad ended up inventing the aluminum ladder. So Werner's best known as Werner Ladder and today has probably 85% of the market in ladder and wow. uh, make uh, wood, aluminum and fiberglass. And so from the time I was born, I was just kind of reared in a manufacturing engineering inventor kind of a family, very entrepreneurial. And they were always self-funded. So every dollar went back into the business. And I know my grandfather, when he started, you know, the, the mission statement was really making dinner money. It was really very humble. And, mm. and it was really that, you know, it was not like today with business plans and crazy valuations and uh, multiples of infinity and stuff like that. It was it was more of a survival kind of a thing. And and it wasn't super educated people. My, my grandfather had uh, you know, a bunch of siblings and they all kind of started in really the business together, several of them. And um, you know, some of them only finished the eighth grade and, but they invented all kinds of incredible things. So, so that business grew. I joined that business, but uh, the rule was in our family to have outside experience before you join the family business. Oh, wow. And- they wouldn't let you get the experience there. No. They wanted you to have some kind of outside experience first. Yeah, that was a requirement. And, Love that and rule. actually, even though we have a, a good-sized family, if you really didn't cut it, they wouldn't let you be part of the family business. They're very kindly. It's a very loving, close family, but they didn't want you know to cause a, a situation where you just weren't up to the task of either the hard work or whatever your skills were, computers, engineering, accounting, sales, et cetera. So we would just have a, a nice way of saying, you know, it's just not going to work out. And great thing about family business, it's a binder, you know, it kind of keeps you close and it keeps you work together. And you, and then you, you know, obviously live as a family together. So that was a very good thing. And so before I joined the family business, I had been working since I'm basically, like I said, six years old, doing everything from, you know, raking leaves, the garages to all kinds of entrepreneurial types of things. But my grandfather wanted me to be, everyone in the family was an engineer and super bright. And he wanted me to be a financial guy and he wanted me to have the financial training because he said, you know, I want a family guy as the CFO. And because yeah. once you kind of know how the debits and credits of a business work, you can understand everything and no one's going to bullshit you. And you can go on and be an engineer and do all kinds of other things and sales and everything else and run the business. But having someone in the family that's really trained to understand, you know, how the numbers come together and how you build apart and the cost works up this way and you have a better approach appreciation for it. So I was that guy. And so out of college, I went to work for what is PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I was living in Chicago at the time, did a couple years there. And that was great experience working for the big company, public accounting firm and seeing that 
lots of different companies. And tons of balance sheets there. <laughs> lots of balance sheets, lots of everything. And I, I had a bias to doing more manufacturing stuff because I, I love manufacturing. I mean, having kind of grown up in the factory and Werner has 42 factories and some of them are over a million square feet. And uh, it was just fun. I just grew up there. On the weekends, my dad would let me bring the go-kart in and, you know, a kid in the winter in Chicago, being able to drive your go-kart inside a million square foot factory and then go into the tool <laughs> shop and, you know, have them re-weld it and help you kind of fix the motor and stuff like that. It was I was young, but it was it was awesome. We didn't have video <laughs> games back then, so go-karts were quite a good thing. Yeah. And obviously, you can't ride it outside in the winter in Chicago, just like Canada. So it was like an indoor uh, auditorium. So I had a bathroom scale company that I was auditing, and uh, the owner said, I would love to hire you and for you to be my CFO. And I said, you know, I'm like 24 years old. You know, everyone hires 50s. And he goes, Great. Because my dad had an opportunity to hire a guy like you once and he he missed it. And so I really would love to hire you. So I was just engaged and I said to my fiance, you know, what do you think of this? And she said, I think it's a great idea. So, and also we both worked at, uh, I met my wife at the PricewaterhouseCoopers and back then people probably today don't realize it, but it was like a taboo to be dating someone in the office. So we had to kind of keep our dating and then engagement very secret. And we weren't comfortable with that. So we, we felt one of us needed to leave. So this the timing was great. So anyway, I go to the bathroom scale company, become the CFO. And, and then I get immediately into the factory and the engineering of everything, because that's my default position and my mindset as a you know kind of perennial entrepreneur. And I ended up being the guy that really invented the digital bathroom scale. So at the time, there were just analog bathroom scales. So the first bathroom scale just had a dial. So you get on it and you look down and it says yeah, 125 yeah. pounds. So we oh, put- oh mine, mine doesn't say that, Mark. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of kind in this conversation, you know. But, but what, what yours does is when, if you had an analog bathroom scale in the old days, you would look down and you'd get on and you'd kind of approximate what the weight is because, you know, your sight's not that great and it's moving around a little bit. So you're kind of guessing. Oh, yeah, bouncing. It's bouncing, yeah. So you're not still on it. So um, we came up with the idea of using a translucent dial and just an AD, analog to digital reader. So then that way you could then, it would display with an LED display what your weight was. So now it would say 165 pounds. So at first that was great. And digital scales were really expensive, new novel thing at the time. This is early 80s. And, but then we started getting a lot of returns. And I realized that when you had the analog one, you were used to making the mental adjustment in your head. But when the LED light said 165 and you get on again, it says 166, you assumed it was broke. And Mm. we had all these returns in economic crisis. So I said something, you know, why don't we just program it? So if you get back on the scale and you're plus or minus 2% of the original weight, deep go back to the original weight. And, you know, this was the microprocessor had just kind of come out. So we were able to kind of write some code in the early days, a very basic thing. And we did that and the return rate dropped to, you know, next to nothing. But then I said, you know, this is really using the same weighing mechanism that has been used in scales for 100 years. And it's really not a great true kind of weighing mechanism. So in talking to my dad, who's one of the smartest engineers in the world as a metallurgist and a polymer chemist, and just just brilliant, 
I said, Dad, what would you think might work for the next gen rather than springs and pieces of metal? He said, look into strain gauges. He said, we used them in the military. They used to be incredibly expensive and you would measure the stress like on a bridge and where you could afford an expensive thing when you're measuring something big and important like that. But he said, because of microprocessors, he said, I think the cost has come down. So investigate that. So I did and I traveled around Europe and US and just did everything. And we didn't have Google and we didn't have cell phones back then. So it was a lot of uh, burning up shoe leather. And <laughs> I ultimately came up with uh, a solution and I uh, made the chips over in Germany and I got equipment and produced it in Chicago. And we came up with a strain gauge technology and we were allowed able to make the mat- uh, the mattress, the, uh, the bathroom scale very thin. So we could get all kinds of new profiles and we could use injection molding instead of just a metal stamp piece of metal, which was the old little boxy kind of scale. And yeah, yeah. we were able to really improve the technology. So when you got on it, it really measured your weight and there was no guesswork. And then we could add all kinds of things. And then eventually the price back in the early 80s, the original digital bathroom scales were 50 to $75 versus 5 to $7 for the analog version. So the price of that came down. And now today it's obviously extremely affordable and you don't really see any analog bathroom scales anywhere unless you happen to find one that's kind of considered a retro, but they're all digital bathroom scales, all utilizing technology. So that was one of, you know, a highly used product that I was proud to have uh, uh, developed early on. Oh, I'm sure in like uh, hundreds of millions of houses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The market penetration on a bathroom scale is probably, you know, 97%, meaning 97% of all the households have them. Uh, Last I checked in the United States, there's 130 million household formations. So that would mean there's probably 13 million household formations in Canada. You know, it's usually around 10% of the U.S. sizes. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was a great learning experience and product. And then a family owned that business. And it was that scale company was called Borg Erickson. And the guy that uh, was the CEO and family guy, his name was Highland Borg Erickson. His grandfather was a guy named George W. Borg, who started Borg Warner and invented the automobile clutch and all kinds of various parts for the car early on. The Henry Ford era kind of guy. Very yeah you know, successful, wealthy guy. And so the guy that owned this business, I became very close with, you know, more than twice my age. And I really looked out and then I became the CEO of the business. And I suggested to him, I said, look, I'm going to watch your business like it's my own, but I'm going to go to my family business at some point in the future. And so I, you know, you like to, he likes to go do all kinds of things except work. So you might want to consider would be my suggestion that we sell the business because now we've built up, you know, we have a great brand. We're now growing like crazy with digital bathroom scales. And I think you should sell it because looking at your kids, none of them seem to want to come into the business. And then what are you going to do? And he is a huge guy. He's like 6'5", 285 pounds. He like fell out of his chair. And I said, you know, take your time, go home, talk to your wife about it. Comes in the next morning and he's hugging me. And I'm like, what's up? He said, that was such a brave, great idea you came up with. And, you know, I talked to my wife. She loves it. Do it. You know what to do? I said, sure. I know exactly what to do. I said, I will have this thing sold in six months. And I hired an investment banker in New York, put the whole book together, met lots of great companies, a lot of Fortune 500 companies because it was a branded consumer product. And um, we sold it to Dart and Craft, which um, was a merger of Dart, which is uh, like Tupperware and assets like that and house, houseware yeah. goods and craft Obviously, today it's just craft foods and stuff. But they had merged together and then they they unmerged years later. So we sold okay. it to them. And 
Um, and it was exciting. I ran that for another year and I said, I'm, I'll stick for a year. I redesigned the whole lineup for the, uh, all the different scales, which was an extensive lineup. And again, I'm the youngest guy in the room because now I'm working for the subsidiary called West Bend, which is pots and pans up in West Bend, Wisconsin. And I'm just the youngest guy and it's just a very strange environment. And, you know, you just get used to working in that kind of environment. So I built the new lineup uh, with, with our team and then I uh, left and then I went and joined the family business of Warner Ladder and then came in as a CFO and then moved up into the top C-suite position. And we had all kinds of businesses at Werner. Besides the ladders, we were custom extruders. So we make little widgets and gidgets for all kinds of stuff, uh, the sailboat mass, windows, door frames, parts that go into automotive, single source to GM, Ford and Chrysler. Incredible company. Company. And Mark, um, can can I stop? Can I stop you there for one one second? Yeah. I just have a question about about this as, as you're talking about this. When you're looking at these different product lines, especially in going back into the family business, were these acquisitions that you were making, or were these kind of like newer needs that you guys were seeing and then just bringing them in? Well, both. We made a lot of acquisitions and we developed new products organically all the time. So if we wanted to get into a new space and say we wanted to get uh, something else to do with the home or, you know, selling what today is the Home Depot's. Originally, it was kind of the Ace Hardware's and True Values and General Store. We would try to acquire that type of a business. But a, a lot of stuff, huge engineering department. And then was this running as, as a branded house or a house of brands? Everything was Werner. At the Werner okay. company, okay. it was always Werner. So yeah. we tried to kind of stick with that. And I learned a lot about branding there because m- one of my uncles who was in charge of sales and marketing, just brilliant at, at both. And if you notice on a Werner ladder, there's a blue oval that says Werner on the side of every ladder. And, you know, when I point that out to people, they're like, oh, really? And then they start sending me pictures all the time and you can't miss them because there's probably, you know, 850 million ladders out there. And, you know, there's just lots of ladders and it doesn't matter if it's aluminum or fiberglass or wood, there's the name everywhere. And my uncle always said to me, he said, you know, just, it's just branding and it's just that repetition of branding. As long as your product is used like that, just put your name on it and people are going to see it and become aware that's the company that makes that good quality ladder. And also at Werner, everything was about quality. Oh, everything was about quality to the fifth decimal. And Mm. it was all about quality because that's my grandfather always felt that profits follow quality. It might not be that week or that month, but eventually you do the right thing and you get rewarded. So everything was very quality. And then also with ladders, because people are climbing, they can also fall. And when tort reform came about in the United States, we would get sued all the time when someone fell off the ladder and got hurt. It was unfortunately the Achilles heel of the ladder business. And that was just an ugly part of it. And nothing was wrong with the ladder. It's just they misused it. It's like you set up an extension ladder to fix your gutter and you're too lazy to then move the extension ladder over four more feet to work on the next four feet. So you stretch and you stretch enough and all of a sudden you fall and the G-force gravitational forces pull you down at a very high cliff and you can hurt yourself pretty good from even three or five feet. So that was always an issue. So the thing that I really took away from the branding and the Werner and that oval, and I don't know if you've seen a ladder that, you know, a Werner ladder with that blue oval, but I'm sure people that are listening will look at ladders and say, oh, Werner yeah, ladder. Yeah, I will and now. I'm that guy. I'm Mark Werner, you know, so it's very easy. And, but when I started Nature Sleep and Ghost Bed 20 years ago with my wife, I put our name at the time, Nature Sleep, which is more of our wholesale line, and then Ghost Bed came later as our direct-to-consumer line. I put that name on every pillow we made, 
on the foot of every mattress. So at the time, no one was really putting their name embroidered on the foot of a mattress. That was like a, something different. I just knew from my Werner days by that repetition of putting the name on everything over and over and over, it would pay off. I mean, obviously not day one, because just you know, three people have seen it. But over the years, more and more people see it. They wake up in the morning, they're like, oh, I'm sleeping on a nature sleep pillow or a ghost bed pillow. I understand who that is. Because most people say, what mattress are you sleeping on? They're like, I don't know. You know, it's one of those whatever. So, but now I, I notice almost everyone in the mattress space puts their name embroidered on the foot of the mattress. You know, it's a especially in the in the direct to consumer world, right? Like they've they've really done a good job of that. Yeah, absolutely in the DTC world, but even in the more traditional, the Sealys and and Certas put their name um, on their on their products now, where they used to they didn't. But that was one thing I you know I really learned at Werner, and and I learned you know quality and just doing the right thing. And as we used to say at Werner, make it easy for your customer to do business with you. Try to anticipate every little pain point that a customer could encounter, be it the end customer or the wholesale customer, and try to take care of that so they don't have that issue. So you're the guy that's the easiest for someone to do business with. And that's mm. always how we would evaluate a situation. And, you know, if it was Home Depot or if it was the end customer. Always do that. And that's what we do here at, at GhostBet. You know, we're, we look at our products and when we design something, we're trying to anticipate when we designed our mattress protectors and our sheets, we designed a two-inch piece of elastic that goes on the fitted sheet. And the reason is because when you have a fitted sheet on, on your bed, doesn't it always come off? You know, not the top sheet. <laughs> always. Always. Well, and always. I'm thinking about our kids' beds, everything. Right. It's like, Everyone. it's that's a, Pet yeah. Peeve. And all you want to do peeve. is just go to sleep. Right. Pet peeve. And then in the morning, you got to put it on. And, you know, if you're, you have a partner, you know, that partner saying, you know, you fix it. No, you fix it. And try to lift the king mattress. It's heavy and it's a pain in the ass. You're running late. We solved that problem. We, we put what we call the ghost grip, which is a two inch piece of elastic around the entire bottom fitted sheet. It goes on. It's easy to put on, easy to take off, but it stays on. And then the customer's happy. And, you know, we try to anticipate all those little things that will just eliminate the hassle. And it's, it's been very successful. Product engineering is a very critical element to success. And putting quality into product is a very important thing. I'm a big fan of quality. I mean, I talk about, you know, high quality, low cost all the time at GhostBed and Nature Sleep and with our team. And that's what we're geared in towards. And that's important. And I always tell people, I say, it's not, doesn't cost that much more to put the quality into the product. I know like I'm wearing shirts, the same type of shirts from Brooks Brothers for 40 plus years. All I've noticed over the 40 plus years is the quality of the shirt has gone down and the price has gone up by 5x. And I would like to get the shirt I bought 40 years ago. And if it's cost a little bit more, I'm willing to pay it. I just want that better quality product. And I think because so many businesses are tied into price points, you know, this is a $29.99 product. This is a $99 product. And in order to hit those price points and meet margin requirements for themselves, if they're DTC or if it's a wholesaler for their margin requirements, they have to kind of re-engineer the product and take cost out. And obviously costs have gone up over the years, um, but, you know, sometimes price points need to move. You know, the $29 product might now be the $39 product. That's just the way things are over time. But I just felt that everything that I was exposed to in all kinds of products, from shirts to, to any, anything you buy, was just being despec. And I, I was, I've never been a fan of despecking. I would rather put the quality into the product. So with all of our products at GhostBed, we put the extra money in. So 
it's just better. And then the customer's happier. It lasts longer. It holds up better. And it's just a win. You know, it's not like something you can't really measure immediately for the customer, but over time they can see the difference. And, you know, they come back and they tell their friends, this is really good. You know, the, the mattress didn't fall apart in two years. It, it's lasted a long time or the sheets or the pillows or the adjustables or, or whatever we're selling. And so I think that's so important, but you have to, as the operator of the business, in my case, owner, operator, CEO, you know, know what the product is. There's a lot of competitors of mine. They're marketing people and some of them are great at it. I was not a savvy digital marketing guy when I started this business. And even when I went DTC, I had to learn. Um, it wasn't, you know, my, my core strength, digital marketing. And I wasn't on social media per se, like my kids, I was watching them on Facebook and things like that. But I, I wasn't. And so I didn't have some of those marketing, digital marketing chops that my competitors and some the younger set of people had. So I had to work very hard and skim my knees a number of times to kind of get to what I would consider to be very good at it. Not necessarily myself, I'm pretty knowledgeable, but my team that I've developed. And one thing I learned was that I had some outside agencies, small, larger, very large, all disappointing. What I realized was I needed to bring that in-house. And I, mm. I brought, I got a director and I've just been building up the team and we supplement it with outside agencies or specialists in different areas, but I needed in-house people to really control that. And that were really- Yeah, driven. you need your strategy in, in-house, right? You need you need that yeah. director in, in-house in uh, in D2C. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. But then there's lots of good, you know, you know, services and SaaS companies and, you know, all kinds of marketing as a service, you know, that you can employ for different types of things. I mean, not to toot anyone's horn, but we're, we've been very happy with Clavio, which is an email and SMS platform that we've become Absolutely. very good at and great partners with. And they just, in fact, my daughter's the uh, director of social media and email marketing, and she's become a whiz. She's worked for us for over 15 years. And Ashley, they just flew down here this past week and did a interview with her for a couple hours with professional photographers, and they're going to run it in some of their, you know, I think case stories or something like that. But we've developed a great expertise, but that's a great service that you employ that, but you have to manage it in-house. You can learn, you know, the sequencing of emails and SMSs, you know, text messages and stuff like that and all the different flows. So you have a great product that they supply, but then you create the content and you connect with the customer. And Absolutely. those are important, important tools. Mark, we're getting close. We, we, we do half hour max on these podcasts and I want to ask you about a billion more questions right now. Oh, okay. But I'm going to kind of try to distill it down to a couple more questions here. So you've done about a hundred transactions, whether that's buying or selling of businesses. Can, can you distill that down for me into uh, any lessons learned on both the buyer and the seller side? Good question. So at the tail end of Werner in the 90s, I co-founded a software company with a couple other guys that were the early employees at Microsoft, originally early employees at Microsoft. And I think like the number three employee and the number five employee. And we built the software company and it was really a publishing engine for web and print and all this kind of stuff. And we tried to compete against Microsoft Publisher, which I don't even think they make anymore, which yeah. that was a mistake. <laughs> we went enterprise. Anyway, we ended up, we tried to sell it and we did sell it. We sold it to Microsoft. And the one of the objectives was to get all the employees. We had about a hundred plus employees in Seattle to get employed by Microsoft, which we were able to do. And I, I guess what I learned there is with that business is, you know, don't necessarily take a, a product and go against a giant. And then sometimes, you know, make sure you have a, a lot of, uh, optionality with that technology and then sometimes make friends with that giant in that transaction. And, and that worked out. Always well. make friends with giants. 
always. Right, right. I, I can tell you another business that I am co-founded, which was in the computer distribution business back in the 90s. When I was at Werner, we had a lot of side businesses and investments. So I became the chairman of a New York Stock Exchange company. I took over kind of this company, and then I did a roll-up of computer distributors. Today, you don't even know about computer distributors. There's really two of them, Tech Data and Ingram Micro. So we built this business into a billion-dollar business in less than two years, which sounds like a lot, especially you know 30 years ago. That that is a big business. That is a big <laughs> business, right? And I'm the chairman of this thing, and that's like a side gig for me, you know, because I'm at the Werner Company and all of our other businesses. So I, I was looking at this industry; it's growing fast, but it's really low margin. And I said, we got to sell this business. We got to get the hell out of this. You know, this is. I call it cancer of the margin. You know, it's it just, there's no margin and there's too many people stepping on the, the technology products, the routers. Yeah, the, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom with the those. It's a race to the bottom. And, and yeah. I just said, I saw it and I said, we got to get out. So we had made friends with a large computer distributor from Europe. So we sold out to them. Which was, they were a $5 billion company. So I figured that was pretty good. And then they get gobbled up by Tech Data, which was a I don't know, $50 billion company. But I, I guess the lesson learned there is when you're in a business, you know, understand really kind of where it's going and, you know, what the margin is, what the growth is, who, what the competitive landscape is, and then adjust your plan accordingly. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. I got to ask you the question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. What is your secret to scaling? It's just staying very focused. And I'm a big believer in delegating and entrusting people to do stuff because, you know, the the head guy, um, owner operator can't do everything. And so you have to be willing to entrust people. You know, make the decision that you've hired a good person or the best you can find for that particular role and entrust them and let them go. The worst thing that happens is they're wrong, um, you know, but they're not going to be categorically wrong. They're just maybe that decision didn't work out and it may not have worked out. If you made the decision, you may have made the same exact decision, but, you know, allow those people to do their job. That's why you hired them. Don't micromanage everything because you just can't scale if you do that. If you have to be on every decision and every email, it's not scaling. And then, you know, just infuse it very encouraging, support people. And when things don't work out for people, you know, with your people, you just be supportive. Hey, you know, this didn't work out. We're going to get them tomorrow. Just like when I hire people, I always say, look, you're going to have good days and bad days. We know that we're just all human. We're going to forget about the bad days and we're just going to emphasize and learn and focus on the good days. So don't worry about it because you're, you're human like everyone else. So give people the confidence to let them run, let them do their thing. We're all going to make mistakes. You know, you just want to be 51% right at the end of the day to kind of win. And that way you infuse it. But with scaling also, I'm always trying to look around the corner. It's something that I've been good at through the years and something I've always focused on. And I think revenue is so important to a business. If you don't have the top line, you don't need anything else. You don't need the best accounting system or the prettiest conference room. You've got to have revenue. So you have to kind of look at your product mix and see where it's going and what new products you need to add to the flavor and what new colors, what new products, what new markets, what new you know cu- kind of customers you can get. That's critical. Keep your eye on the top line, where it's coming from and what new can happen. And then you're going to run into some stuff that will just be really uh, hot and just really take off and, and allow you to scale. And then obviously at the same time, you know, build that infrastructure so you can handle that scale. The last thing you want to do is get a lot of orders that you don't have the inventory for, you can't ship, you can't process, those kinds of things. 
Absolutely. Uh, Mark, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question. Norm- normally, I'd end it right here. But you said something interesting in our pre-talk about you sponsoring um, some really big podcasts. Can you kind of walk me through how that works and how you guys are tracking that? So we saw that podcast is a big thing. And I'll be honest, I don't really listen to that many podcasts just because I think I'm, I'm older and I miss that generation. I'm probably working too much rather than listening to the podcast. But so we connected with a more of a startup podcast called Drinking Bros. And it's a huge podcast here. A lot of military people and they have Drinking Broettes and they've uh, splintered into a, a number of different sub podcasts. And we've become the lead sponsor over years. And it's been phenomenal for us. We have landing pages for them. And we can actually track it pretty well. We have an exit interview every time you buy something on our site through SurveyMonkey. We ask four very awesome. easy questions and a very high percent of people fill it out. And so we, you know, how'd you find about us, uh, hear about us, what do you think of our site versus competitors, those kinds of things. So when you kind of can see, you know, Drinking Bros as a source of how you heard about us, you can kind of measure that against the other data and you can see what that's driving. And it's, it's very effective. And also with a mattress, unlike a shirt, or a hamburger, this is a durable good. So it's a long cycle product. You know, it's got a life of, you know, kind of forever, but a typical replacement cycle is seven to nine years for a mattress. So people are only in market, you know, 10% of the time. So you you might need to be very repetitive about GhostBed on this podcast for three years. And then the person's moving or needs a new mattress or, God, I keep hearing about that. My back hurts. I'm going to look at this GhostBed. So it's important that you kind of stay in front of those people, even though it's not a a high uh, purchase item, a a regular uh, purchased item. And it's been just a great relationship. Um, Some of our guys have, you know, met with them. They've been on the the video podcast. They're racy guys. They, you know, they're, they're kind of out there on a lot of topics and stuff. It's kind of fun, but they have a very loyal, loyal audience. Uh, it's a huge audience. It's millions of people. And it's been a great relationship for us. We, we'd love to find more, you know, types of communities like that, that are very loyal to that podcasters. And um, Absolutely. It's, a, it's a very good, you know, forum, I think, for getting uh, awareness of your brand. Absolutely. Well, that's great, Mark. I hope that this gets people thinking, some of our listeners that are listening to this episode, thinking about maybe what kinds of podcasts you guys can sponsor, or maybe even start yourself, right? It's it's an incredible yeah. medium as, you know, 270 episodes into this now, uh, and wow. knowing, you know, yeah. what it's very done impressive. for... Yeah, yeah. And, and knowing what it's done for us with our acquisitions, with our agency, it's it's really an incredible medium uh, in 2021. So Mark, this was incredible. If I had more time, I would just keep talking and talking with you. This was, yeah, I, I think this is probably the least I've ever talked on a podcast episode. I've just listened basically most of the no, time. Um, I didn't even know how so. went by because... You know, I I feel it in my stage in life, I I do it here at the office. You know, it's so important to kind of give back and kind of mentor and try to share your wealth of learnings over the years with with everyone else so they can, you know, improve their position and and mindset. I'm used to talking a lot. Well, I I appreciate your time. I I know that your time is incredibly valuable and we really appreciate this. And uh, this is one I'm going to share with personal friends uh, because this was just a really incredible chat and it's really cool to hear your story. So... Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Bye now. Hey guys, one more thing before I go. Like I mentioned, this episode is sponsored by Helpflow.com, the 24-7 live chat team that provides human agents to over 100 e-commerce stores. Helpflow drives sales by predicting and saving abandons before they happen on your website and then engaging on chat. They also integrate into your email, 
and SMS cart recovery efforts to turn those messages into fast live conversations so customers get answers to the questions that caused them to abandon. I mentioned that their onboarding process is extremely methodical to learn your business specifically. They've built this process over five plus years with complex industrial and medical parts companies so they can definitely learn your business. A recent comment in the Shopify Plus Facebook group from a client said that after working with so many agencies over 10 years, they've never experienced this easy of an onboarding process and high quality of a service. To learn more about how to drive more sales with a methodical approach to live chat, visit helpflow.com. Even if you don't end up working with them, you'll get a ton of value by going through the Abandons Audit process since they've worked with so many brands. Visit helpflow.com today. Hey guys, we hope you really enjoyed today's episode. Can we ask you a favor? Hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode and share this with your e-commerce store owner friends. We also love reviews. So if you could leave us one on Apple Podcasts, that would mean so much to us. Just a reminder from the beginning of the episode, our team at Mindful Marketing is rapidly growing and we have room for one new brand a month that's looking to grow. Now, before you apply, please note that we're only looking for businesses that are ready to scale and have the capacity and the inventory for a large influx of orders. This opportunity is only available to brands that have had at least one year of sales history and are ready for explosive growth. If this sounds like you, go to mindfulmarketing.co apply and start the process today. I hope you guys have a great week.